Hi, my name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to the Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day eight, Genesis 14 through 15, Job 3 through 4, and Proverbs 1, 8 through verse 19. And just a reminder, I'm reading out of the NIV version. Genesis 14. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok king of Elisar, Kedaloamar king of Elam, and Tadal king of Goim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedaloamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedaloamar and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphites in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shiva, Kirathiam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedaloamar, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They all carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite. A brother, Eshcol and Anar, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Heba, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedaloamar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salam, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God, Most High, creator of heaven and earth. 
And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them have their share. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit? My estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Job 3 after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan.
May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of my soul, to those who long for death and that does not come, who search for it more than from for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lion may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, what deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Proverbs 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will all share the loot. 
My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Wow, okay, lots to think about here. Dr. Carmen Imes, an Old Testament theology professor who works with me at Biola, has a vlog on YouTube called Torah Tuesdays. She also has a couple books, which I really recommend. She recently gave commentary on our reading today, specifically Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. I link it in the show notes. She helps to orient and explain this reading. Remember from yesterday's reading, Abram and Lot had just separated because Abram and Lot both needed more land for growth, and Abram let Lot choose, and Lot chose the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So in this reading, they had already parted, and while this is somewhat of an obscure chapter, we know that a coalition of kings fight against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they win, making Lot and his family taken um, as plunder or taken captive as a result. So when Abram hears this, he and his household with 318 trained men go fight to get Lot and his family back, and they win. Father Mike Schmitz describes how Abram essentially went on a rescue mission for his nephew Lot. And then there's this interesting encounter with a priest king. This is going to become really important. The combination of a priest and a king, a priest king of Shalem or Salem. Side note, Dr. Dr. Tim Mackey states Shalem is short for Jerusalem, which later becomes the capital of Abram's future family. So that's super cool to reflect on. Okay, back to the story. Melchizedek, which is this priest king, blesses Abram, and he's the first person to do this. And Melchizedek offers bread and wine on a high place. Doesn't this sound like the Eucharist, aka communion? Some of you have already read the New Testament and know how this seems remarkably similar to other places we are yet to read about in the Bible, which is also really cool. And what your market also note that Melchizedek is somewhat mysterious because John Collins from the Bible Project states the author doesn't explain and therefore we don't know why he worships Abram's God when at this point there was no people of Israel and the Bible gives no family lineage for him. However, Dr. Carmen Imes recently went to Jerusalem and had a tour with archaeologist El Shukran, who told her about a brand new discovery, not available to the public yet, of a temple in Salem, which dates back to Abram Melchizedek period and appears monotheistic and not Canaanite. It may have been the place where Melchizedek was priest king. I link the article in the show notes. Um, So cool. I hope you enjoyed that. Yet, Melchizedek gives God the glory in this story for the victory and gives God's blessing to Abram in a feast, wine and bread. And while Abram was part of the rescue mission, he gives one-tenth of everything he has to the priestly king Melchizedek, whose Hebrew name means my righteous king. This is another super cool example of Old Testament foreshadowing, and foreshadowing sort of gives listeners expectation in this story. For a priestly king, the one we now know is Jesus. We can affirm this because later on, Jesus is described in the Bible as having a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek in Psalms 110 verse 4 and in Hebrews 7 17. 
Father Mike Schmitz and gotquestions.org describes how one of the reasons Bible authors describe Jesus as having a priestly order like Melchizedek might be to illustrate how Jesus will be a Messiah and a king and the priest of priests over all people for the entire kingdom of God because, as I mentioned, Melchizedek was not an Israelite. Abraham had no children yet and therefore no tribe of Israel. There wouldn't be Levitical priests for about 400 years. Also know Levitical priests were priests alone and not also kings, and certainly not messiahs or rescuers. The parallel here might be foreshadowing that Jesus would be the rescuer Lord, king, and the highest of priests. This parallel is super interesting to reflect on. Okay, we all know that we are getting closer in the story to where Abram becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah, but not yet. We did hear about the covenant, and a covenant is interesting, especially when you compare it to a contract. While some people use these terms interchangeably, there's something more here when you contrast these terms. Of course, I can't help to reflect on this as I'm a business professor and I'm married. Is there and what is the difference between a covenant and a contract? I see a covenant more like Genesis 2 when Adam made his pledge before God to Eve and the result was one flesh. There is a long, long, interrelated, connected commitment for flourishing and thriving between the two for living a well-lived life. Whereas a contract does not require a person to give up self-interest. In fact, the purpose of a contract is usually for some sort of personal benefit or gain that the other party mutually feels will also give them gain and benefit towards their self-interest in the contractual exchange. This is not inherently bad, but it is different from a covenant, which I see as a two-way promise and an acted-out pledge to share and yield, a decision to be interconnected towards and shared a shared purpose through Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Like I tell my daughters, if having and sharing are in conflict, which is more important, it's to share. Is having bad? No. But in conflict, sharing is more important right? I find that the heart, mind, and behavior are located differently in a contract versus a covenant. Nowadays, people might make pinky promises, but in the Old Testament, a covenant was often made by having at having, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, having animals and people walking through it or between the halves, indicating that if they do not fulfill their promise, they might be divided in the same way. Gross, but vivid. God promises the blessing as he did with Adam and Noah, provision in land and progeny, future generations. Also note, like God said designed and designed in Genesis 2, God wanted Abram and his family to, in all capitals, be a blessing to all of humans and all of creation, not just to be blessed. Our purpose continues despite the alienation and dislocation of Genesis 3 and many of the stories since. Also notice that God walked through the sacrifice, making a covenant with Abram in this story, and Abram did not walk through it. Maybe this is a testament to God's immutable character of mercy. God knows, as we might imagine after listening to Genesis 1 through 11, that humans, even his chosen storytellers and rescue mission renegades, will not only be able to hold up their end of the bargain, but they'll fail pretty miserably along the way. Uh, So in order to keep us from breaking our own covenant, uh, he's the one that walks through it. It's as if God is taking on both ends of the covenant. Through Jesus, we know he amends our failure to rescue us, to restore us, and redeem us to him. We also read Job 3 and 4. 
And the book of Job, which is the last of the wisdom books of literature, Proverbs is the first and Ecclesiastes is second. We also read Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Note the book of Proverbs emphasizes that God is wise and just. Dr. Tim Mackey describes it as explaining how God ordered the world so that it is fair. The righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. But then we will be reading in Ecclesiastes later and we'll learn people don't always get what they deserve and life is not always fair. And it's sometimes unpredictable and hard to comprehend. So the question that Dr. Tim Mackey and John Collins describe as hanging in the balance here in Job is the question, is God really just and fair? This is what the book of Job is really talking about. We learned yesterday in Job 1 and 2 about the Satan telling God that Job was only righteous because of his blessing, and God allowed the Satan to test Job. Then Job loses essentially everything except his life. This reminds me of the late 1800s story of Horatio Spafford, the man who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul, after he had lost his son in the Great Chicago Fire of 19... I think it was 71, and he lost most of his wealth too. And then very soon after, he lost his four daughters um, as they crossed the Atlantic for England, and his wife sent him that famous telegram, Saved Alone. When he traveled from the U.S. back to England to meet his wife, it inspired him to pen the lyrics to this song, It Is Well With My Soul. Kristen DeMarco does a rendition of this song, and recording uh, um, of her song is in Bethel Music on YouTube titled It Is Well. When I am suffering or the mystery of God and the hardship of suffering is overwhelming me, this song, these lyrics bring a peace and a solidarity to me, encouraging me to trust and let go of needing to understand or have answers and to climb into his arms instead and to rest there and be reminded of who he is and whose I am. And I repeat, it is well with my soul over and over again. Even if and when my heart is hurting, my body hurts or my mind cannot comprehend the why. Mm, it's such a good song. I link it below. Then in Job 3 and 4, we begin to feel and understand Job's internal suffering as we hear his poems begin about him cursing the day he was born. Then some of Job's friends come to try and help. Job's friend Eliphaz says all suffering is a result of sin, but like most deceptive messages where there's something true in it and something false, we know that suffering can be a result of sin like a natural consequence, as seen in Genesis 3. But suffering, we're beginning to learn, is also a result of alienation and dislocation of the world because he gave agency to humanity. They can all, any of us, can pull away and cause others to suffer with their sin. And that receiver may not naturally or consequently deserve it. We see in Job that the Satan, a fallen Elohimian creature, has this power, but needs God's permission to wreak havoc in this case on Job's life. And Job clearly did not deserve it. God was not trying to punish Job. God states how amazing Job is in Job 1 and 2. God is wisdom. We cannot ask, is God wise? Or we can, but then we're comparing him to our understanding of wisdom. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Humility and genuflection and I surrender all is needed in our relationship with God. This surrender includes my need to measure God against my finite wisdom. 
It requires that I yield to him in relationship and know in the grand scheme of the kingdom of God, he will provide and bless because he wants to give gifts, to bless, to share. It is his nature to share a portion of his power, to give responsibility, to bless, and to bring order. I do not own anything, not my life, not my time, my relationships and resources. They're all a gift that I steward. They do not belong to me. I enjoy and appreciate them, but I also work and care for them because that is part of my Genesis 1 and 2 purpose. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.